I'm Mary Angela Abeo, and this is the Face to Faces podcast, a conversation series that provides a platform focusing on the LGBTQ and POC communities and their allies in the areas of activism, politics, mental health, arts and entertainment, and community. In this space, we discuss the human experience in our ever-changing world. My goal here is to remind you that while you may have moments where you feel isolated and alone, there is always an incredible community of people here that is safe. We all connect to people at our deepest pains and our greatest joys. And in this space, we're here for those moments and everything in between. I'm so glad you're here. Take a seat next to me. It's always open. Now, let's lean in. Okay, I am so excited to have my guest here today, Moses Farrow, who is a licensed therapist, is a mental health and adoption advocate, and also, of course, from one of um, the most famous families, Woody Allen and Mia Farrow's son, um, and has experienced suicide loss, sibling loss. And so this is Moses Farrow's Faces of Fortitude session. We connected almost two years ago. And um, so I'm really excited to have you here today. Welcome. Well, thank you so much for staying in touch and having me on on your podcast. I think this is going to be really, um, I think, a healing space for both of us. Yeah, I think, um, you know, when we originally connected, um, I think it was through portraits, actually, because you're actually a photographer as well, and you take beautiful portraits. Mm -hmm. And so we connected on portraits, and you sent me a message, and I sent you a message back, and it took me a few messages to realize the connection to your family and then the fact that you had suicide loss, because I think a lot of us, I'm not, I'm not going to dismiss um, the fact that your family is well known. So a lot of us know the story of your family, but a lot of us don't know the loss. And I know I was not aware of the suicide loss in your family. And I know when I heard that from you, my heart broke because the fact that that wasn't the first thing people knew of and talked about shows you where suicide and mental illness is in the grand scheme of, of media press culture. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so um, I know that sharing that side of it is hard, but I'm really excited that you agreed to do this because I think more people need to know the other side of it. Well, I, I just appreciate you having this space, uh, you know, for us to connect and, it's really uh, been a journey for me to open up that side of myself to be able to share it and express it and um, really uh, bring bring light into that dark space for, for myself. And I'm finding that the more I'm doing it, uh, and I'm really doing a whole lot of it uh, lately, um, <clears throat> It's uh, uh, helping others to tap in for themselves as well. Yeah, so. I think that's exactly what I'm finding happens. And I think, I mean, being a therapist, I'm sure you've got um, <laughs> therapy words around that that I don't have of why that is. But it's amazing how mm. just a safe space between two people that have connected 
over something tragic and something horrible opens up this space that maybe a counseling office or even a doctor's office or a survivor's group doesn't do the same thing, you know? So Mm -hmm. it's interesting. Well, I want to start with the fact that I'm not sure how much of my story you've heard, but I find that sharing um, a little bit of my story, and it's interesting as I was doing my homework and reading up on you, um, our stories are very similar in many ways as far as the matriarch of the family and as far as the dismissal and gaslighting of what is suicide and what is not, um, which Mm -hmm. is, I find it very harmful and really hurtful um, because those of us that are processing the suicide um, have that taken away from us by the people that uh, refuse to call it that, whether it's shame or societal shame around that word. Um, so I'm still being gaslit by abusive family members to this day around my brother's suicide and the fact that he was just, he just did a lot of drugs and he had a bad drug trip and this and that. And it's interesting how they just refuse to use the word. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. So, um, yeah. So basically my brother was 26 and, um, he struggled with mental health his whole life. Um, But I think the biggest part of my story always goes back to when I was a kid, when I was 17, I was the oldest. Um, After a sexual assault in high school, I attempted to to take my life very severely. Um, And my brother and sister found me passed out in my room in a puddle of vomit and nothing was ever said. So I was in the hospital, stomach pumped, epicac, everything. Um, The discussions around, um, the doctors and everything. My mom came and it was very, uh, gaslighting. It was very, she doesn't know what she's talking about. It was very, this is not, she wasn't sexually assaulted. I don't think she knows that, what that means. Um, and then none of the family was informed of that's what I did. So my brother at 11 never had a conversation around what happened to his sister that day. And I think that looking back, I think that maybe when he became dark and sad and depressed 10 over a decade later, it might've helped him to know that I went through that and had been in that space. Do I think it would have saved him? No, because I think there was something much larger happening, but I do think Mm -hmm. having those conversations in families as hard as they are, are very important. So um, we started the gaslighting started so young. And then my brother, you know, he had, there was uh, schizophrenia in the family and he um, just, he started showing so many red flags, but he was also a Yale grad. He was the first one to go to an Ivy league, let alone a big college. Wow. He was a genius. And so, you know, he was over, living in, in New Haven. He was just like, he was mm-hmm. in theater. He was doing music on the side. And so we thought his red flags were just a sign of being a genius. None of us had done that. So a lot of us were just like, oh, he's just, he, this is just, he's smart. He's eccentric. So it was undiagnosed, like totally undiagnosed. No, no, no medication, no, no treatment. He refused. Every time he got close, we would, every time we got close to getting him medication, we would have red flags were there and we were like, we have to get him to a doctor. Family members would meet. And then he was brilliant. He was so smart. He could see it. And he would do those six month resets. He would go on a trip about every six months, go away for a few weeks and come back refreshed and better. 
reset almost. And every time he came back, we were like, oh, maybe he just needed a little vacation. And we kind mm-hmm. of put it on the back burner. And the last time, when, it's really when I knew something was wrong, is that a bunch of us family members got together and we decided to start sharing stories. And this is when I kind of went, why haven't we been talking this whole time, all of us family? My aunt, mm-hmm. uh, my brother had a guitar that he was given in my grandfather's will, beautiful rounded back wooden Italian acoustic guitar. And he was a brilliant guitar player and he would carry it everywhere. It was one of his prized possessions. And my aunt had said, you know, um, then one day the guitar disappeared and um, my brother crushed the guitar and he built a piece of armor out of it that he wore around outside and said that his grandfather was able to protect him more when it was in that form. And I was like, okay, there's something going on. His, his red flags were so intricate and so genius, but also very concerning. So um, we had all decided my dad was going to get power of attorney and we were going to get him some help. And then he took off to Peru and that was, and we couldn't, we couldn't do anything. So um, he went to Peru, he came back, he got a job in Atlanta working for a nonprofit and we thought, oh, he's better. He was working for AmeriCorps, ironically, (laughs) um, for at-risk youth uh, for a project called Outward Bound. And we thought, oh, well, maybe he's okay. But as he shared photos from Atlanta, he was getting disheveled and, you know, beard. It looked like he was covering up sores. So I thought maybe he was self-medicating. Um, but he had, he had a girlfriend, which was strange also, because I know he questioned his sexuality for a while. So again, I was just, I was kind of looking at what I could see from afar and he seemed okay. Um, but every time you talked to my brother at that point in his life, it was very heavy. There was a lot of like zeitgeist, um, um, theories, uh, very, very paranoid, um, he would tell me that he sometimes would hear voices, but maybe that was just mm-hmm. his evil side. And um, so, you know, we never really knew what to do with that. And he had a ticket to come home. It was June. I was headed overseas with my family on a vacation and Matt and my, my sister was here. And um, he went into his office one day. He worked downtown Atlanta. It was on a Sunday. So he wanted to go use their internet And he emailed us. He emailed my sister and I and was just very chill. Like, hey, I love you guys. I just wanted to say I love you. And I'm so excited to see you in a week. And yeah, I just wanted to say I love you. And it's so rare to get something so short from him um, that my sister texted me and she was like, that was strangely normal. And I was like, hey, let's not, (laughs) you know, don't don't, don't tempt it. Let's just leave it. I'll see Mm -hmm. you on the other side. I have like a 12 hour flight. So, um, I was flying through Atlanta and that day when I flew through Atlanta, I had a three hour layover and I was flying with Mm -hmm. friends and I said, and then our layer was delayed to six hours. And my friend looked at me and said, doesn't your brother live here? You should see if he wants to come for coffee. Mm -hmm. And I Mm -hmm. distinctly remember saying, (laughs) excuse me, he's a lot right now. Conversations with my brother are a lot right now. I'm not interested. I'm not going to, I'll call him on the way back maybe. And mm-hmm. six hours later that day. So, I mean, I worked through therapy a lot. So my brother went into his office building. He wrote that email to us. And then 
the police think something in his email set him off. He, there was construction happening in the hallway. And so they had left paint and tools out. He brought the paint in mm-hmm. and he totally wrecked the office. Paint splatter, punched all of the TV screens, wrote death to technology and things like that in, in, in paint with his fingers and then covered his head with his shirt and jumped out the office building window. Oh was- my gosh. <coughs> Pardon me. It was my gosh. Yeah. and epic in so many ways. Cause if you knew my brother, this Marvel superhero fanatic, he was really mm-hmm. living out something that I think he had planned for a long time. Um, my whole family was already dis- very, very dysfunctional, crumbled. And half the family said, he must have been high. He must have been on drugs. This was not suicide. And all the people that knew him, college friends, those of us who saw his dark side said, it didn't matter. This is what he did. Clock screen came back. He was totally sober. He had drugs in his pocket. Um, and that's basically was the catalyst for the Faces of Fortitude project. Um, I spiraled for several years until I figured out how to handle it. Um, Got my first therapist ever about three years into my grieving process. And she's still my therapist Mm -hmm. to this day, eight years later. Mm. Um, And, you know, she had to do a lot of unpacking with me because I was raised in a family where therapy was just not, it it meant you were weak. And um, Mm -hmm. once I unpacked kind of the, not even just my brother's suicide, but the dismissal of my own attempt and the um, abuse, the mental abuse that happened in the household, there were so many other layers to this that I just didn't see. Uh, um, uh, I, I, I can't even just... There's no word, wow. really. <laughs> it's okay. Yes. No. Really. Uh, I mean, I've really just sat and and absorbed what you're sharing, and it's really from childhood and your own personal experience, and you know, fast forwarding and really centering around around your brother and his schizophrenia. And if I may, like just. What an awful, tragic, uh, you know, experience, and um, and I think I just missed a piece where your layover in Atlanta. It was the same day, yeah. And you had chosen not. Let's not. Yeah, in fact, I talk about that. That was the premise of the the TEDx that I did last year, and I remember thinking, mm-hmm. do I want to share this story? The person that was helping me write my, she was helping me kind of get my writing together, and. She said, you need yeah. to share a story that's really hard. And I was like, this is the hardest realization I had to come to was, would I have been able to save him that day? Possibly. Mm-hmm. I think that maybe I would have, but I think I just would have postponed it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what people need to see. Postponed it by hours, days, years? Yes. I think days. I think days. I think he... 
he was already down such a dark path that a phone call from me would have mm-hmm. would have been a very temporary band-aid, a very temporary salve. There was so much more darkness going on. And I have glossed over a lot of stories and not shared a lot. Um, there are some details that are just, you know, I think looking back, my brother was so sensitive to the 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 ills of the world, homelessness, abuse, molestation. Things like that were very hard for him to hear about, to talk about, to the point where it looked like it it hurt his body. And um, mm. I, I'm a firm believer that I think there's some people that are too sensitive for our world. Or maybe mm-hmm. we're too desensitized. I'm sorry? Or maybe we're too desensitized, you know? Uh. The rest of us are just dealing with the horribleness of it too easily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and, and actually that's a point that I often think about is uh, how far gone we've, we've come, like how far we've gone, um, you know, in terms of valuing life itself. Uh, and, uh, you know, so for things like this to occur and suicide to occur and, just even the the stigma and the taboo of it, the shaming, you know, language around it. Um, but um, I mean, for you to share so openly and in so many ways, and um, you know, I guess a question I have, uh, I have a number of questions. By the way, I'm, I'm a ther- I'm a therapist. Of course. <laughs> um, but. Uh, uh, what's it like for you at this point, you know, you know, to go through it, you know, and share your story? Every yeah. single time it's healing. Every single time. And every single time I share different parts um, based mm-hmm. on what I think people can hear or want to hear or need to hear, um, which my therapist says is its own issue. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I feel like, I share it with so much more control now. You know, I think you've probably heard this in the suicide space that it never gets easier. You just get stronger. And I'm definitely a lot stronger telling the story. But one of the things I did for myself the first year to get to this place, the first year of grieving, I told the story of my brother's suicide every day for a year to someone, whoever it was. And I needed to get words out of my mouth that were really painful, whether it was jump from a building, drugs, suicide. Like there are words that are were just too hard for me to say. And they were like nails in my mouth. It was, it was horrible. And so now I can say those words. Um, it's still hard for me. I mean, we don't realize how many movies have people, hero, heroes jumping from buildings. It happens all the time. And so I'm watching it going, now I can watch it. And I usually don't watch the whole thing. I usually just kind of turn my head, but before I was debilitated. And so I think now sharing that it's very healing. It's also, I, I like sharing it because it's amazing how many people connect. It's amazing how much darkness and pain people connect to. You know, when I read your essay for the first time, The first thing I connected to was the gaslighting. The first thing I connected to, because still 
the most painful thing for me is that people are not honoring his, my, my brother had a dark side. And if I didn't share that, he would be so angry with me. He would be like, my Angela, you know me, you know, I had a dark side. Don't make me into this magical Jesus human, please. Not his dark side. And so I I think the people that are denying the suicide and denying the mental illness, um, and, and I think your family can be very similar. I think it's really easy for people to look at the scandal in your family, but they're not looking at the tragedy and the trauma that affected youth. Like that is just mind blowing to me. And it's also, um, why I connected to you when I first read your essay is I was like, I am so sad that anyone has to deal with other family members saying that's not what happened when it's something that none of us want to happen. Why would we change a story? I just had a horrible family member on Twitter call me a fake and a fraud and that everything I do is to benefit off my brother's suicide that wasn't actually a suicide. And it was heartbreaking and horrible. And the fact that, you know, any of us have to deal with this around something that's already so painful is, it just reminds you how far we have to go still around this stigma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, I uh, really uh, appreciate you being, you know, so strong at this point and being you know being able to have that ability to share and just the piece um that kind of stood out for me because you mentioned it a number of times and i'm not sure if you really go into the red flags you you mentioned the red flags you know all, all throughout i mean but there's there's such depth and real um uh, you know, just like lived experience, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, a depth of reality to this is my, li- my life. This is what's actually happened to me. And I, um, and I think uh, th- that's the piece that really draws people to pay attention and then to be able to internalize it, relate to it. Um, relate to their sense of uh, lived experience and their their pain that they've had to endure or um, you know that they've gone through and uh, it's just um, so you you just put it all out there and uh, with the um, you know with your brother uh, you know just being brilliant genius but there were these red flags that you meant, you know, you just like highlighted all throughout, uh, and not really having um, a real understanding of what was going on. And his life continued, you know, he continued to just grow, grow up, and carried on um, until he didn't. Yeah, uh, and I think the red flags. Of course, hindsight is twenty twenty, and of course, in suicide and mental illness. We always look back and go, why didn't I see that? But I think for me, it was so much of, he was so brilliant that I wanted so much to make sure he was okay. And so it was so easy for me to find excuses for those red flags. It was almost, it, it was almost too easy. 
And I think that that's mm-hmm. what so many of us don't, because I don't think we weren't listening to him. I don't think that was it. My brother had so much attention. He was the baby of this Italian family. And so mm. he had so much attention on him that we just weren't looking at the right things. You know, I think that he, mm-hmm. he spoke one day about my daughter and this was really hard for me because I remember thinking, I love you brother, but this is not okay. He said we were, we were, uh, he was coming home from New York and he had done a whole road trip and there were so many red flags along this road trip that he had taken on himself. He even called me from some random town and he said, Manejo, do you know where I am? And I said, where are you? And he said, well, you know, when you open the map and there's like that crease in the middle, I met the crease. And I was like, okay, can you tell us where you are? <laughs> like, nope, I'm just at the crease. So he would do little things or he said, I'm on the subway and there are kids looking at me and they can hear my evil. I can hear it. They, they can hear it. And I was like, okay. And so when he came home, he said, you know, Madison, just, you know, you've sent me so many beautiful pictures of her, of her dancing and she's amazing. And I've watched her sometimes from the window at the classes. And he said, I just think um, your daughter has never had any struggle." And he said, I just, I wonder if I'm the one that's going to teach her some struggle. And I was like, sorry, excuse me. Like I, at that point, something switched in me and I became, and I was like, I don't care if you're fucking mother Teresa at this point, like you any way make me question my child's safety and it's done. So place and he was no longer allowed to sleep at the house and no longer to, you know, allowed to be there without us there. And it was hard and he was so hurt. And he was like, why do you think I would ever do anything to her? And I said, honey, you can't say stuff like that without having some accountability. So those Mm -hmm. were a lot of the red. And again, those were still red flags that I was just like, he's just, he'll be fine. He just needs a break, you know, and I really Mm -hmm. wrap my head around it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those built for at le- almost a decade, almost a decade, those built up. And and without any professional guidance. We tried. Refused. He was so smart. He would get out of it so easily. Oh, I've got this trip I have to go on. I've got this thing I'm studying for. I'm in this play. He would get out of it. Uh-huh. And he was so smart. Uh-huh. And we would just go, oh, well, your things are so important. You are so smart. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I know that uh, you know you had mentioned you know we have a similarity in our stories in in a way and and as you've very generously uh, you know shared shared yours uh, um, these are the pieces I think I'm picking picking up. Picking out, you know, the red the red flags, the need for treatment, um, and I think that piece of what if, you know, what if I was there? What if I could have saved them? And any residual guilt or um, um, just unresolved uh you know grief right which is that piece of suicide loss that none of us ever are able to find that puzzle piece because we don't know the answer Mm -hmm. um 
Well, yeah, right? I mean, just, it's unanswerable. Uh, uh, something you'll never get. So, um, so I appreciate you kind of laying it out. Like, let's get beyond whatever's known, whatever's, you know, been thought of or, or you know, uh, whatever opinion that has been based on whatever's been shared about, you know, my family, about uh, what's happened, um, you know, with my family. And uh, I've really been taking a deeper dive into my truth and a large piece of my truth is I'm adopted. I have many siblings who also have been adopted. Um, many of us have disabilities. Many of us... Uh, and you your full siblings. You were all put in adoption together. Is that correct? I'm sorry? These are your full siblings. These are You guys were all put in adoption together. So, oh, well, thank you for pointing that out. Uh, yeah, uh, we were adopted separately from a variety of different countries uh, at different times. So none, none of my adoptive siblings are my biological siblings. Okay, got it. Helpful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But still, they're your siblings. You grew up with them. Same. But we did grow up together in, right. in the same in the same household. Um, mm -hmm. um, but just on that note, you know, the use of language is really, really key. Uh, so I appreciate you like um, bring that up. Um, there's many different facets to adoption. There's many different types of adoptions. Uh, many different ways people can bring right. Um, bring people together to form families uh, these days. So, um, no, you know, they're all uh, my uh, adoptive siblings. Um, my, my mother did have four sons uh, uh, biologically, um, and then she adopted 10 children. Wow. Um, and um, so... With um, what I know now, given my journey, my personal journey uh, inward, um, I've been able to start making some connections and what we call in the, in the adoption world coming out of the, the adoption fog or the adoptee fog. Mm. Uh, really putting pieces together that form the reality of what the experience really is. Right. And at the heart of it is adoption trauma. And when you start, or when I've started to peel back some of these layers to reveal more of my trauma and triggers and, and blind spots, you know, the red flags about, yeah, okay, this is um, going hand in hand with being adopted, right. you know, and the choices I've made, the uh, experiences I've had, um, you know, it 
in a way opened me up. It in a way um, gave me the sense of responsibility to dive into this piece about my siblings who have died by suicide, who happen to be adopted themselves, who happen to have disabilities. Um, and, um, you know, so the more I was able to access that within myself, the more I'm, I've been able to ah, mm. really speak openly more about, uh, yeah, this is what's happened. This is part of my reality. So I have three siblings. So tell me, what age were you when you you lost your siblings? Because I wanted to let the listeners know that we are doing a second episode after this with two other people and talking about the adoption, the, the issues around mental health trauma mm. and suicide in the adoption and foster care system. And so that is something mm. that is serious and needs its own episode. So that mm. we're doing after this with two other guests, Carlos and Jesenia. But I want to talk about your trauma. I want to talk about what age you were when these happened and the effect that it had on you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So um, I have three siblings who have died by suicide at different times in my life. And the first was my sister, my sister Tom, um, who was blind, who was at a transitional time in her life. Uh, and it was during my senior, senior year of college uh, where I called home with the exciting news that I had gone into my master's program mm. uh, only to be hit with the news that she was in the hospital and you know getting more of that story of why and what happened and and um, you know just being told that I needed to needed to drop everything come home uh, which is what I did which is traumatic um, um, yeah, and, uh, <clears throat> it was, um, you know, put out there that she had died by heart failure. There was a mix up of her medication and, and I've been putting it out there saying, actually, she had an amazing memory uh, she was someone that did not put her blindness as a weakness or even as a, as a, um, as a hindrance or a barrier for her to, um, do things and live, you know, uh, a, as full a life as possible. Um, and, um, you know, so she played piano, she cooked, she, took care of the younger, uh, the younger kids. Um, you know, she babysat. I mean, um, so it was, 
it's been really important for me to, you know, put that out there. She was struggling with depression for most of her life. Uh, I did try to advocate to get her therapy, to get her help, you know, professionally. Um, and uh, it was only met with, no, it, you know, it's not depression. It's, you know, she's a teenage girl, you know, she's moody. Um, and, um, you know, so it, um, I'm realizing these pieces of the truth need to be put out there. Mm. You know, let's get beyond, you know, um, what, whatever opinions or conjectures or, you know, conclusions that people might make about it uh, and whatever might be put out there. This is, you know, there's evidence, there's, um, uh, you know, witnesses who are there, there's um, research about adoptees uh, and, you know, that's um, something that happened, you know, in my early 20s. That's a lot to take in. I'm so sorry. And not only that, but it's a mm -hmm. lot to take in that you had to be the one to defend this. Like it's something that we all want our siblings to die by. Um, when in reality, we just want the truth to be out there. So maybe it helps somebody else. Well... <laughs> We all need to stay in reality as much as we can and put that out there. The truth, our truth. Uh, so the, um, uh, the next time I needed to go home, uh, it came years later, and it just happened to be on Christmas Day that my sister Lark had uh, had died. On Christmas Day, Ugh. and it was on Christmas Day. Um, and um, you know, at that point, my son was uh, you know turning one, you know, just taking his first steps, and and um, it was. Uh, you know, very difficult news, uh, you know, to receive. Um, but, um, you know, in Lark's situation, she had been living um, with AIDS, and it just overwhelmed her at that point. You know, she, she had been living with it for, for such a long time, and... Um, and uh, the news had come out, you know, it was, it was uh, um, uh, a, a lung infection, um, you know. But it was really, it was her choice not to be resuscitated, you know, really to, to say, even if there's a chance, I, you know, that there's really no more life I want to live at this point. Um, um, so, you know, that's, 
And how old That's was a choice, right? How old was she? She was she was in her mid thirties. Oh, so young. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, and she she had two young daughters at the time, and um, you know, so in any case, um, years later, uh, it was my younger brother Thaddeus, um, and. There, you know, there was no question about it. Even though you know the initial stories came out that he he had a, a life, um, a life threatening or lethal accident or, mm. um, you know, whatever the initial uh, you know reports were, but um, there was no um, there was no question. He had shot himself mm-hmm. in his car, you know, um, and um, it was just uh, another kind of. <sighs> At this point, how do you how are you dealing with this trauma? Because every time you hear it's a new it's a trauma the first time and then it just peels that scab off the second and third times and it just digs it deeper. Um, I, uh, the way that I've dealt with this, uh, I mean, I've, I've experienced just numerous losses in my life, um, of all different kinds. Uh, you know, I've, I've had, uh, you know, friends, I've had teachers, uh, um, um, who have died, who, who have also died by suicide. Um, and, um, you know, I, I've also, I've also been, uh, uh, suicidal myself. Um, you know, so, uh, this is definitely an ongoing process. This is definitely, you know, I think where I started was it's been a journey, um, and the journey has been a journey inward for myself, uh, where I'm no longer in, de- in denial. Mm-hmm. I'm no longer outwardly angry just simply because I miss them and simply because they're gone. And, um, and, and at such, you know, young ages and, um, and, um, you know, they just happen to be, you know, uh, my closest siblings to me. Um, I want to sit with that for a minute because I feel like when my brother died, I was, I was recommended to read a book and it's the best choice I've made. I was like, I, uh, it's a book called Surviving the Death of an Adult Sibling. And mm-hmm. it's short. It's like this big. And it's so good and it explains how when you lose a sibling first of all we aren't really acknowledged in the grief process in circles you know i was automatically asked how are your parents or you're asked how is their spouse or how are their children but the siblings aren't really acknowledged and this book talks about how when you lose a sibling you lose somebody who 
first of all, they're the only people that can corroborate your childhood. They can verify and tell you, yeah, do you remember that time mom did that? Do you remember that time dad did this? They're the only people that can do that with us. They're also the only people that can see you present day and say, look at how far you've come. And then they're the people that can see you down the road and go, I can't wait to see your kid's wedding, or I can't wait to be old with you sitting on your porch. We essentially lose, when we lose a sibling, our past, our present, and our future. It's so much bigger of a loss than people attribute to the the survivor sibling. And I feel it every day. So the fact that you've had to feel it times three, first of all, I've never been more grateful for you being a therapist because that's probably helped you a great deal. But (laughs) yeah, I can't imagine. So I just want to say, I just can't imagine everything that you've had to hold. That's a lot. Uh, Well, I appreciate you putting it that way. It is a lot to hold. and certainly uh, this profession that I've chosen, you know, I guess people could say it makes sense that I would choose to study psychology, that I would choose to become a family therapist of all the kinds of therapies that are, that are out there. Uh, that um, uh, it has served as, as a way to frame it. Uh, to open it up, to find the language, find um, the um, ways of looking at, uh, as you're saying, the different kinds of relationships. Um, and in, when it comes to loss and suicide, you know, the kinds of losses. And I'm really, I'm really appreciating you sharing that, uh, you know, from, from the book. Um, uh, there, there is no other relationship like the sibling relationship and you laid it out so beautifully uh, um, and um, you know I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into more on the adoption side because there's adoption loss there's traumatic losses associated with adoption um, and there's just so much more that is revealed with uh, how it um, it is multiple traumas it is multiple triggers to this more primal traumatic loss when you're adopted uh so it is just that much more and uh i've been i've been fortunate that i have availed myself to therapy uh from a young adult on um that have just helped me get a little bit further along um, and orient me to take a deeper dive into myself. Um, But it's no less harder and the loss is there and the sadness is there. The pain is, is just, um, it's, it's there. Uh, You know, so, um, so much of what I'm putting out there along with this is practicing self-compassion, practicing um, taking care of yourself, 
learning more about yourself, being curious. Uh, and don't do it all at once if, if you know, it's overwhelming. Uh, but it is a process. It does take time. Um, and, um, yeah. Yeah, I think that a lot, a lot of people that don't, that self-compassion, that's such a great point, Moses, because I feel like there's a lot of people that are like, oh, it's been, you know, it's been five years, I should feel better by now. Or, you know, this is, a, there's a lot of people that have it harder. And, you know, and I think that there's just so much um, weight put on our grief process and not enough of really celebrating what we've survived. You know, I have so many people that sit in front of my camera or sit for this podcast that have lost that break down these traumatic, horrible, sad stories, and then proceed to tell me, you know, I'm a mess. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, let's, t you got out of bed, you complete sentences, you got dressed, you showered, and you are having the bravery of telling your story to me right now. I'm sorry, you just won the week for me. Like, we're not giving ourselves, like Moses, not only did you lose three siblings, but you, to suicide, the most traumatic way, it's likened in some circles to being the same as your body experiencing a plane crash. That's how similar those traumas are. So not only did you experience that three times, you had to do it in the public eye. When I was reading your essay and that picture of you as a kid, I remember, I remember you as a kid. And I remembered seeing your picture and I remember thinking, I didn't have to process my brother's suicide with anyone that was in the public eye, with anybody that walked anywhere and got had, you know, press or people, paparazzi or whatever, having my family name, you know, being in the public eye for a scandal and nobody really talking about my brother that I loved so much. You know, I didn't have that and you did. So that's just another layer the fact that you are able to talk about it at all, considering all that, is such a win. It's such a huge, huge thing to tackle. And I don't think enough people unpack that part of their trauma, of the circumstances around it all, you know? Because you've had quite the circumstance. Well, there's just so much. I mean, there's so much to unpack. I mean, what you what you shared, the way that you were able to encapsulate your story and your experience, uh, um, there, you can spend really many, many episodes, many, many hours so unpacking so, so many of those layers. Uh, there's so much. And I think this is why it is an ongoing process because it's like, let's just pay attention to this part. Let's pay attention to that part. Now, you know, and it, you almost have to do it that way because then it just, it's overwhelming. And um, I remember at the time, you know, a family friend asking, so how are you doing Moses? You know, when, when Tim was in the hospital, uh, when she had passed away and, and I said, I'm here for my family. I'm here for my mother. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm dissociated from myself. 
is the way that I'm, I'm understanding now. I was so far removed. I had numbed myself over. I was distracting myself to take care of others. Um, all, all of which are trauma responses. I was so deep in trauma. Uh, and it's taken this long to understand that, to unpack that, to revisit that, to say, oh, there is um, language around this and understanding that I hadn't had before. That's um, so huge. That's so huge. And I think, <clears throat> I don't, how did you feel when somebody asked you that? Because it's, somebody asked me that at one point. And I remember breaking into tears because I had not been asked that. And then I remember very quickly stopping the tears and saying, actually, my dad is a mess right now. I need to not cry and I need to go take care of whatever. You know, I think especially siblings, the older siblings, we are, we're tasked with the, we got to take care of everything during this mess. And um, it's, it's a big job and it doesn't leave room for our grief at all. And we disassociate too, because, Hey, it's easier to help other people than helping ourselves. Hmm. So uh, how did you feel when somebody asked you that besides disassociate? Like, do you look back and wish you would have sat in that for a little longer? <clears throat> Honestly, I really needed that attention. I really needed someone there for me with what I was going through. And even though, I mean, I was in my early 20s, you know, with, with, with Tam. Um, and then, you know, subsequent years after. So I would, you know, I was, you know, full grown adult, uh, you know. Um, but, um, yeah, I was only in my 20s. And to have, uh, you know, just someone be there. I remember going back to going back to school and I really appreciated my um, one of my professors saying let's go out for coffee mm. and and I want you to know you know I'm, I'm here for you um, you know I want to hold some space for you I I won't forget that. You know, and that he had that wherewithal. He had that ability to just, you know, carve out a little time for me. And whatever that time, whatever we did during that time, you know, whatever that time meant. But just to say, yeah, you count. You matter. Um, whatever you're, you're going through, your grief, don't do it alone. And, you know. So for my professor to be that kind of person, to say, yeah, no, don't grieve alone. That's huge. Yeah. I love yeah. that you had that. Well, I know that um, we could talk for hours about this, and I feel like this probably won't be our last discussion around this. I, I have a feeling, because I still want to take your picture at some point, and that will be a whole other discussion. Um, okay. But... I do want to move into this next episode and discuss, you know, the roots of adoption culture, the adoption, um, the fails, the way that they are failing the adoptees mentally and, and the suicide rate rising exponentially. 
and no one really talking about it or doing anything about it. Um, and, and I have no problem calling out um, a few people that I reached out to even to be part of this. And it was just kind of radio silence um, in the suicide world. And it's, mm. I will definitely be a beacon for this because it, it makes me, it's that important to me. So we're going to shift. If you want to tell us a little bit about Jesenia, who's going to be coming up. Um, and then Carlos is a face in the project. Um, and Carlos is was in several foster homes and then finally adopted and was abused in all of them and um, attempted mm. to take his life several times and now has written a book and um, does a great local project here, um, getting um, packages and, and gift packages together for foster kids, um, especially the ones that have to jump from house to house. And um, yeah, and then Jasenia is a friend of yours, correct? Uh, she is. She's a fellow adoptee. Um, she has been such an amazing advocate, an amazing voice for adoptees, specifically around adoptee mental health. Um, and she's been doing this work uh, to just be a resource, to be an advocate. Um, she is someone uh, who's just been around for over a decade um, just saying we have to put our mental health as adoptees out there we have to help people understand what it means um, to be adopted we have to support and offer resources for adoptees who are struggling and suffering um, and this has just been a steadfast passion of hers, personal passion of hers. And she's made it into, um, you know, over decades worth of uh, just amazing amount of compassion and, and advocacy. Wonderful. Well, um, if you're listening to this, um, this is the next episode. And um, Moses, thank you for sharing your story. Thanks for connecting with me on a topic that I am sad that we both are part of that club, but I'm also happy to know that we are not alone there. I cannot tell you how much it means to have another person, you know, with lived experience, but who wants to create platforms for other survivors, survivors of loss and get this out there. Um, and, um, you know, in a way, uh, uh, make it okay, make it normalized, uh, make it, uh, uh, more of a healing type of, uh, um, conversation. Well, hopefully this will do that. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and all the episodes. We hope you'll join our quickly growing online community where there is always someone to hold a space for you if you feel alone. If you have an idea for an upcoming guest or topic, please don't hesitate to reach out. All social media links and contact information can be found at my website, MaryAngelaAbeo.com. And until next time, take care of yourselves and those around you. And by that, I mean, wash your fucking hands, wear a damn mask, 
defund the police, pay the fee, basically continue fighting for the rights of indigenous and black lives everywhere, including and especially black trans lives, and do your part to abolish all forms of systemic racism. I'll see you next time.